This is a CBC podcast. Hi there, I'm David Cochran, and this is the Power and Politics podcast for Monday, December 11th. Canada is about to go on the record before the rest of the world. Will it support a ceasefire in Gaza at the United Nations? Coming up, my one-on-one with Foreign Affairs Minister Melanie Jolie. And an apology from House Speaker Greg Fergus over a recorded message that critics say was partisan. Will that suffice? Plus, the Liberal government rolls out its largest social program to date. Later, who dental care affects and what the political impact could be. Israel continues its military campaign in Gaza. Battles are raging across the enclave. Israeli forces are pushing further south and are now in the heart of Han Yunus, Gaza's second largest city. The UN estimates up to 90% of Gaza's 2.3 million people are now displaced. Secretary General Antonio Guterres is warning public order in Gaza is on the brink of breaking down. The Hamas-run health ministry says more than 18,000 Gazans have been killed in the war. Over the weekend, Canada's Foreign Affairs Minister, Melanie Jolie, welcomed to Ottawa a delegation of foreign ministers from Saudi Arabia, Turkey, and the Palestinian Authority. That delegation is calling for an immediate ceasefire. To date, Canada has stopped short of going that far. Melanie Jolie is Minister of Foreign Affairs. Minister, uh, welcome back to the show. It's a pleasure, David. I'm happy to be with you. I, I'd like to start off with your meeting the weekend with the foreign ministers from Saudi Arabia, Turkey, and the Palestinian mm-hmm. Authority. What more can you tell us about what you discussed at that meeting and what plans may come out of it? So the goal was to uh, hear their points of view on what's going on in, uh, in Gaza, what happened in Israel as well, but also to work as I've been working with many other players in the regions, including, of course, Israel, on how we can address the threats posed by Hamas, but also about a a lasting peace for the region. And so it was constructive, um, a constructive meeting because, you know, there's nothing like being there, seeing your counterpart, having real discussions and, 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 and frank discussions because what is happening in the Middle East has an impact in many, many countries around the world, including, of course, ours as well. But very divergent views in that meeting. I mean, Canada ha- has repeatedly said it supports Israel's right to defend itself in accordance with international law. The readout from this group talked about the need to protect innocent civilians from what they call the killing machine practiced by the Israeli occupation forces. So how do you find common ground and, and a common position there? I think where we agree is at the end of this conflict, there will be at one point a table of negotiation. Mm-hmm. Hamas won't be at that negotiation table, but there will Do be... Do they re- agree with that? Do well, they? I think, well, this is our conditions mm-hmm. for sure. Uh, and it is the case for the entire G7. But at the same time, there will be Palestinian voices. There will be Israeli voices. And we need to make sure that we work many countries together to bring back on track the discussion on the two-state solution. It needs to be a credible path. There needs to be a credible path for making sure that this is feasible. Mm-hmm. We've been talking about it for 30 years. There's lots of skepticism regarding this important approach. It's been 
Canada's long-standing position that we are in favor of having an Israeli state next to a Palestinian state living side by side in peace and security. But now more than ever, after this conflict, it will be important that it's put into place. And that's why I've been having important conversations with countries such as right. Saudi Arabia, Turkey, Jordan, Egypt. So clearly a two-state solution is not on the table with Hamas at the table. But can it work with the Netanyahu government? I mean, they are promoting the expansion of settlers into the West Bank, supporting that. And they're being criticized for the way they're, they're, they're conducting their operations inside Gaza to the point that a lot of the world considers them illegitimate in other ways. I mean, can it work with Benjamin Netanyahu at the table? Well, I think that how um, uh, Israel is conducting itself in Gaza is important. Why? Because we need to make sure that Palestinians, civilians are more protected. At this point, we're at 18,000 Palestinian civilians and, 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 and that have been killed. Mm -hmm. There's 70% of these people were women and children. So it is very, very, very concerning what is going on right now. Humanitarian aid is not allowed enough to go in. So there's an impact on food, water being available, medicine. There used to be 55 hospitals and clinics working in Gaza. Only five are left. So we're facing a humanitarian um, uh, a humanitarian uh, issue that is at a level we haven't seen in the world in a long, long, long time. So, so that, to, to come back to your point, right. um, we expect the uh, Israeli government to be in favor of a two-state solution. This is our long-standing position. And I've had difficult conversation, to be frank, with my Israeli counterpart and many uh, e Israeli different voices uh, about this very issue. And we've been clear also that we do not agree with extremist settler violence happening in, 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 in uh, the West Bank. We've had a clear declaration also uh, about this that was issued a month ago. And we expect Israel also uh, cracking down on these extremist settlers that are put, putting Palestinian lives at risk. You say you want the violence to end and you say there will be a lasting yes. peace, but Canada has not joined the calls for a ceasefire. There's going to be a vote at the United Nations. Nations General Assembly tomorrow out of frustration with a ceasefire resolution being vetoed by the United States. How will Canada vote on that and how do you get to the end of violence if people don't call for a ceasefire? Well, indeed, we need to make sure that there is the, the, the violence must stop. Indeed, again, the cycle of violence is not helping Israel's long-term security. And, you know, we, make, we need to make sure that the, uh, the, 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 um, the way that Israel is conducting itself is in line with international humanitarian law. Is so on the right question now? of the resolution, David, that mm -hmm. you asked me, uh, we are still looking at the different uh, uh, versions of the resolution. We're negotiating. Uh, there are different amendments that are being discussed. So I'll have more to say tomorrow on this very issue. Okay, but on, on the question of uh, defending itself in accordance with international law, more yeah. and more we're hearing aid groups saying they're not. Uh, I mean, I'm no expert on this and I can't pass judgment. How does Canada view it based on the evidence you've seen and, and the 18,000 dead, as you've... Uh, See, I think at the core of our foreign policy since the Second World War has been Israel's right to exist, mm -hmm. which is fundamental, and at the same time, protection of civilians. And clearly, there are tensions between these two priorities right now. But eventually, of course, we will support any form of accountability systems at, system at the international level that will look into this issue. Meanwhile, what Canada has been clear is that we fund UNRWA, which is the organization that helps Palestinians, Palestinian civilians, their health care system, their 
uh, humanitarian system. And we've increased our funding. Canadians expect us to do that. We are calling for more humanitarian aid to go in. Uh, there's not enough, like I mentioned. I met with all the humanitarian organizations that have been working uh, on the Canadian side in Gaza. I've heard their call uh, for help and for support, and I'm working with the Minister of International Development, Ahmed Usen, on this very issue. So, but, but just on, on the resolution tomorrow, yeah. I know there's some negotiations going on, as mm -hmm. you say. Canada abstained last time because an amendment didn't get enough support uh, to take effect on, on the motion, if I remember correctly, and uh, the idea was to have a condemnation for Hamas uh, for what it did on October 7th at the time. But since then, as you said, like about 10,000 more people have died. And, and the United Nations seems to be kind of paralyzed uh, for various reasons to take even a firm position uh, on what to do uh, about this conflict. I mean, could we see Canada abstaining again if you don't get the sort of resolutions uh, or sorry, the amendments that, that you're counting on? Well, the Secretary General of the UN took a bold action last week, mm -hmm. which was basically... Uh, enacting Article 99 of the UN Charter and calling what was going on in Gaza humanitarian catastrophe. So cat catastrophe. We we have to bear that in mind when taking our decision. Uh, but as I mentioned, we will look at the last text. We've always been clear that uh, all hostages need to be uh, need to be released. All more humanitarian aid needs to go in, allow be allowed in, and we need to make sure that Canadians. Be allowed out. I've been hearing the calls of so many Canadian families that are frustrated with the fact that their loved ones are still stranded in Gaza. And I hear them. But we're not in, in charge of saying yes or no. Mm -hmm. Israel is working with Egypt. And so we need to make sure that foreign nationals, including Canadians, are able to allow it out. And I hear also the call for an extended definition of right. who is allowed out. I know you would be asking me this question. question. Yep. Uh, and I'm working with the Minister of Immigration, Mark Miller, on this issue because I think we need to have a more compassionate approach. So even if they're not permanent residents or Canadian citizens, but they do have family here and have that strong connection, you're, you would consider that? We're, we're looking at different options and coming up with, uh, with a decision very, very quickly. Okay, we're, uh, we're tight on time, yes. but one last question I want to ask you about. Yeah. President Zelensky is going to be in Washington tomorrow. Yes. The U.S. Congress is so far refusing to pass any kind of additional aid packages for yeah. Ukraine, and they badly need it if they're going to stay in this fight with Russia. Of course. How important is it for the U.S. to deliver on this? How worried are you for Ukraine that the Republicans in the U.S. in particular seem to be holding this up? It is extremely important that uh, the U.S. support continues, as it is important as our support continues. And what we saw last week was the conservative voting against the support that we're providing to Ukraine. Right, but the military aid from the U.S. is the backbone of, I know. of the Ukrainian defense. I agree, right? David. But it is also about burden sharing. It is about making sure that many countries around the world, particularly those part of NATO, are able to support at the level, level required by Ukrainians. Because Ukrainians, you and I know, and all everybody watching us knows that they're fighting for their freedom. But they're fighting also for our freedom because what's at stake is the security of Europe and our transatlantic security. There are tensions in Europe, though, too, just as a final point. You know, Hungarian yep. Prime Minister Viktor Orban is threatening to veto, if he can, or obstruct any new aid, uh, you know, and, and get in the way of, of uh, veto accession talks with Ukraine to the European Union. So you have unrest in Europe, a reconsideration there, and, and, and blockades happening in the United States. I mean, how worried should we all be about Ukraine's viability in this fight in the short term? I think that 
um, what happened is when Russia decided to legally invade Ukraine, it was a strategic uh, defeat on their part. Why a strategic bad decision on their part? Because they isolated themselves diplomatically, politically, economically, and militarily. Mm -hmm. We need to continue to have that edge over them. And that is why we'll continue to support Ukraine. We'll push the conservatives here at home to make sure that they get the message and get with the program. And meanwhile, we'll support, of course, the Biden administration and the EU as a whole to continue uh, the support to Ukraine. And, of course, provide uh, Ukraine with EU accession, which is fundamental for uh, their future. Foreign Affairs Minister Melanie Jolie, good to have Thank you back you. on the show. Thank you. House Speaker Greg Fergus was grilled today by MPs questioning his judgment over a video played at a partisan convention. The fundamental rule of being Speaker is also one of the easier rules to follow, and that is you just don't do partisan things. The precedence is vast. We all know that it is wrong. I don't understand what was going through your mind as you were taping it. I should never have recorded it. I apologize unreservedly. I blew that call, but I'm also telling you that I will do better. Fergus taped the uh, tribute to outgoing Ontario Liberal Party interim leader John Fraser while in the Speaker's office and wearing the Speaker's robes. So could Greg Fergus be the second Speaker this fall to fall on his sword? All right, let's bring in the power panel. Brad Levine is with Council Public Affairs. He's just getting hooked up. He'll join us in just a second. Lisa Raitt is a former Conservative Cabinet Minister, now Vice Chair of Global Investment Banking with CIBC Capital Markets. And here with me in Ottawa, Vandana Cotter is a political consultant, former advisor to Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, Rob Russo is the former CBC Parliamentary Bureau Chief, now writing for The Economist. Uh, Vandana, let, let's start with you. Uh, your impression on Greg Fergus's testimony today, but also the reaction from the NDP. They've expressed a lot of disappointment in the Liberals, or in the Speaker. They've done that with the Liberals and not pulled the plug. Do you think that might save Greg Fergus? Where do you think we are? Yeah, I think Greg Fergus has a long history here in terms of, like, he's been a page, he's done several things. Um, he's well-liked across party lines. He was chair of the Parliamentary Black Caucus, so he has built relationships. I think this is really what it is. People are just disappointed in him. Um, they feel like this was something easy to have, like, thought it through. So I think definitely is a mistake. But I think it depends what happens at committee. I think the vote will go forward. But I see more disappointment from the NDP rather than a full-out, no, you need, you need to not be here. Uh, Lisa, what, what's your reaction to this? I mean, you heard from Andrew Scheer. He's saying, like, whether it was meant to be a private video or not, it got played in public, so you can't unsee it, and, and you're, 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 you're stuck living with this. What do you make of those arguments, the testimony, and what the New Democrats are saying? Well, obviously, I think that they're going to hold water. And what it comes down to isn't about the context or whether or not he should have known or not known. For me, it's when the speaker is put in a position that they have to come up and answer a controversial point of privilege, or they have to make a ruling that may go against the government. If he doesn't do that, he will always be accused of being partisan. His record is now completely tanked when it comes to whether or not he can rule on something contentious and be seen to be able to point to the fact that he is, in fact, on nonpartisan when it comes to weighing weighing the arguments and writing the writing the decision and and that's the crux of being a speaker it's not about playing traffic cop in the in question period it is ruling on serious matters on questions of privilege that crop up in every parliament and i really think he's put the office of the speaker in such a, a bad light that he's not going to be able to come out from underneath that that cloud 
Brad, uh, what do you think? Uh, when I listen to uh, the New Democrats, your, your crowd talk about this. It reminds me of my parents when I got in trouble in high school. They're not so much mad as they are disappointed, uh, but that still led to punishment. I, I mean, what do you think they're going to do here for, for Greg Fergus? Yeah, I think it's I think it's going to be the the one time where you really want to tune into the PROC uh, deliberations, <laughs> the committee that that will be looking into this. And I think Peter Julian, the lone New Democrat on this committee, uh, is going to have a a a you know an oversized uh, weight here. Uh, I think it's going to be a close vote, and he could be uh, its ultimate decider. Uh, I could see New Democrats making the case uh, both ways. Uh, you know, uh, the infraction is is serious. I, I agree with uh, all that has been said, and we talked about this last week. Um, you know, but he is the first you know black um, African Canadian speaker. Uh, but he is a he is a is a hot partisan uh, for the Liberals. So I could I could I could see credible cases going each way. The question then becomes if Mr. Fergus is removed. Uh, as the main speaker, uh, who is next in line and what are the conservatives, where will those conservative votes go uh, for the next speaker? Because I know that there's, there's new Democrats who may be in line as well for, for this uh, job if Mr. Fergus vacates it. Uh, Rob, uh, how do you see it? Uh, I, I, I want to pick up on what okay, Brad you go said. Right ahead. And I, I, I'm sure that it wouldn't swing uh, the NDP's votes. But somebody who got a fair amount of support, apparently, was Carol Hughes, uh, a New Democrat MP from Algoma, Northern Ontario. Um, and would the Conservatives be prepared now to, to vote for a New Democrat to, uh, to, to manifest even more distaste for what happened? Look, uh, if, if you look at what happened today... Um, uh, Mr. Fergus did, by communication standards, everything that he needed to do. He made an abject policy. There was no um, subordinate clause following his apo apology, no comma, but. Yeah. Uh, and it didn't seem to be enough. Uh, if you listen to Mr. Julian, he said at the very end, he was still troubled, troubled by what uh, he didn't hear in some instances. I'd be, I'd be interested to know what that was. But uh, you, you listen to all that, and it appears that Mr. Fergus's speakership is hanging by a very, very thin reed right now. Do you think so? I, I mean, Rob, do you really think they'd go to, like, two speakers in, like, a little over two months uh, over there? Like, I have no idea. I, I think, I, look, I, I think I said last week that, that this is a much more coarser parliament. Uh, yeah. Political discourse is coarser now than it was before, and they're cranky. Uh, I mean, they just spent 30 hours uh, last week. They're, I think they're still cranky. If you watch the question period today, the temperature hasn't come down. The Christmas spirit isn't exactly fulfilling the House of Commons right now. No, but the Christmas filibuster ended with 13 shopping days to Christmas, so we, we still have that. But, uh, you know, Vandana, on this point, though, right, like we, we learned today there was no consultation with the clerk's office on whether or not this was like a rush job video done by his staff, it seems, in between meetings while he was wearing the robes. But he also gave an interview about Mr. Fraser to the Globe and Mail, which is a public thing, certainly not a private video. And then we found out that the trip to Washington, which surprised a lot of us last week was pre-planned for when he was a backbench MP for yet another retirement, um, not something that was organized specifically to his role as speaker. What do those revelations um, lend to this story? I think for this, it just goes back to you know the fact that he's still new in the role. 
that you know I'm not sure about the like logistics about the Washington trip. I'm not sure if there was like you know if he was supposed to go. I'm sure there was like some sort of like check in there. But I think for the other pieces, like this is still very new. As much as he spent a lot of time in Ottawa, I think in terms of the specific role, there's a lot of key key pieces that he has to take in, um, that his staff need to take in, and it seems like a rush job. It sounds like this was someone who's a good friend. He didn't really read through all the pieces of it. He just got requests and just went forward. But I think what it ultimately means, like we'll have to see. There's a there's a process for this. We'll have to see mm-hmm. how that plays out. But ultimately, I don't think majority of people will want to see another speaker ousted at this point. I agree with that. I think that causes a lot of problems with our institutions. Uh, the peak, peak that like creates the bedrock of our democracy, and I think people ultimately don't want that. But I, I heard this new in the role thing uh, today when mm-hmm. I watched the testimony, and the Liberals were kind of spoon feeding that notion uh, into the committee uh, to Mr. Fergus. That's why there's a clerk, right? That's why there's a permanent yeah. infrastructure uh, of things. I'm new to this role, and if I have questions, I speak to the people I know. I mean, there was a failure there. That, I mean, that's why the bureaucracy exists. Yeah, make no mistake. Like, this was a mistake. This was a, this definitely needs a wrist slapping. Like, Greg Fergus, like, this was not great on part of, like, his, you know, judgment, his mm-hmm. rush, and maybe came from confidence of just knowing how this place works and having this confidence, but not thinking, like, let me just double check for a second or just forgetting for a second that this video, you know, this is a new role for me. I should really just check about that. So I think let's, he's definitely learned his lessons. He's put in pro, like protocols in place to to make sure these don't happen again. He's checking with other Westminster parliaments. I understand, but you know I think yeah. at the end of the day, like we'll have to see how the process turns out. But we'll see. Right. So Lisa, do you think that's an effective argument with the public? Because the Liberals and, and the Speaker were were pushing that today at committee, saying I was new. You know, some things I still need to learn. But like he did run for it, and he's been around Parliament a while. Uh, do you think it's an argument that that people will buy? And the dog ate my homework? Um, no, I don't think so. Uh, look, excuses are, you know the phrase, everyone's got one. Uh, the reality is, is that um, he wanted to be the speaker. He should understand the role of the speaker. He's been in parliament long enough. But all that to be put aside, what is the most damaging piece here that I keep going back to is there's not going to be a trust in him to be able to weigh partisan issues in such mm-hmm. a way that he can rule on issues that come before the House that may go against the government, because he's seeing himself first as a liberal and second as the speaker. Now, maybe he's going to have that big altar on his personality uh, overnight. Maybe this is the moment where he decides I I have to do better. But it's going to take a lot of convincing. And do Canadians follow? I don't think so. I don't think Canadians are following, but parliamentarians sure as hell should. Uh, I want to thank you for breathing that uh, expression, by the way. I don't need the ombudsman or the CRTC breathing down my neck. Uh, Brad, uh, on this, uh, what what would be the bigger factor, do you think, for the New Democrats? Uh, Leaving a speaker who has admitted to making this mistake in the chair, knowing all of the complications that that entails, or being the deciding voice Mm -hmm. in whether or not the second speaker of the year gets heaved? Right, and and for for every uh, action that they take, there's a reaction for the other opposition parties. So, uh, if if I were sitting around, uh, you know, the the the, the table with uh, with Peter Julian and the team, we would be considering what impact does this have on giving Polyev and the Conservatives more juice, mm. uh, because this is another uh, they they will get an outsized uh, sense of uh, you know blood in the water and another victim, a liberal victim. So it adds to the the setbacks for the Liberals, uh, and it gives more juice to the Conservatives. That's true. Um, but then the question is, what's next? As for folks at home, I mean, 
Mr. Fergus has lost control of the House of Commons if we can make the argument that he ever had it, and if there was ever a goodwill at the beginning of his tenure to do that. That's why it's inevitable that he will either, if he stays on, he won't control Parliament and it'll, it'll just continue to be as coarse of a circus as we're, we're describing, uh, or if they, you know, turf him and replace it, will the Conservatives behave differently in the House of Commons? Right. Uh, if a Conservative were to be put in the Speaker's chair, or uh, somebody like Carol Hughes from the New Democrats, would, would, would anything change? So these are all the considerations that they have to, plus they also have to consider, again, turfing the first African-Canadian Speaker of the House of Commons. There's going to be a community out there who will say, you know, look, overlook this infraction because of what, what it means symbolically for, for, for a chamber which has underrepresented the diversity of this country uh, for, for, for decades, uh, if ever. So there's a lot, a lot to consider, uh, and they're going to have access to more of that intel than, than we are at this time. Right. I mean, Rob, just I'll give you the last word, but in terms of controlling the House, I mean, obviously Mr. Fergus has made his own problems, but I'm not convinced the Conservatives with the way they are using Parliament will abide by any Liberal speaker. You know, that, that, that I no. just don't see a solution. No, I, I think that we can count on um, uh, less than swashbuckling repartee over the next year and a half, no matter who the speaker is. I'll tell you one thing that did change from the last time we were discussing this a week ago. It was an open question whether or not the Liberals were going to support mm. Mr. Fergus the last time mm. we were here. Uh, it looked today like he has solidified support in his own caucus, which is not insignificant. And that allows um, the House leader of the Liberals to go and have uh, a discussion with Mr. Julian and others, uh, New Democrats, to see if a deal can be made to salvage this thing. Uh, and, and as we saw uh, today, this morning, deals are being made between the Conservatives uh, or between the Liberals and the NDP that seem to be benefiting the NDP. Perhaps the NDP could squeeze some more benefit out of a deal to save Mr. Fergus's speakership. The federal government announced today it will be creating a commission to investigate systemic abuse in Canadian sports. This comes after countless calls for a public inquiry from athletes, coaches, advocates, and a parliamentary committee. For more on this, the Minister of Sport, Carla Qualtrough, joins me now. Minister, thanks for coming. I appreciate it. Thanks your for time. having me. So it's not a full public inquiry led by a judge with subpoena power. You're creating an independent commission instead. Why go this route? Um, it, first of all, you're absolutely right. So looking at all the various models of inquiries, commissions, public processes, um, reviews of systems within you know the past 20, 30 years, um, some really stuck out to me. A Dublin inquiry for doping, a Romano's inquiry into the future of health, right. and the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Um, what I really am liking about the TRC is it's trauma-informed, it's victim-centered, it's forward-looking. It starts with the premise that bad things have happened, a system didn't protect you. Um, that's where we are with this issue, right. I think, in my opinion. But, you know, there, there are still uh, some athletes who wanted the public inquiry. They wanted an accountability function that exists with subpoena power and judicial weight uh, that may not necessarily be, be what they get here. Right. I mean, what do you say to them? Um, I, I recognize that, and I respect a lot of the athlete voices that have that have called for that. So it's hard for me as a former athlete to kind of disagree yeah. respectfully, but I do. Um, I think on you know weighing everything, all the pros and cons, I still think this is the best way forward for sport. Um, there's also the element that sport is you know fundamentally a provincial jurisdiction, so there would be a significant amount of P FPT negotiation to under a public inquiry. You have to negotiate and agree on a terms of reference amongst the 14 governments. 
government. Not even sure we could get there because it's so provincially heavy. Um, that could take a year. So this thing might take a year before it even starts if it was a public inquiry. Um, compelling evidence, the cor corollary to that is the right to cross-examine. So you put an athlete on, you know, in a hearing, and now all of a sudden that's the opposite of trauma-informed, right? It's, mm. it's forcing someone to testify, forcing someone to prove they were harmed. And I actually think we're, we're ahead of that. Like, I don't think we need a two-year public inquiry to, to, to conclude that bad things happened. Let's right. stipulate that. Let's start from the premise that we believe you, we know you were harmed, we're very sorry that this happened um, within this system that where you were supposed to be protected, um, and let's move forward to just a better system where okay. this isn't tolerated. I, I, I want to move to the solutions yep. in a second, but just one more question about this. Like, what about the accountability function that often comes in public inquiries of naming names for wrongdoing? I mean, th it doesn't seem like this is the sort of thing that will happen necessarily um, with this. Like, well, how, where does that fit into the law? Yeah, I'm not sure the naming specific, are you talking like individual people's names? Or organizations right. or failure? I, I think you know. organizational um, deficiencies will come out of this, absolutely. Mm -hmm. But there won't be findings of culpability. There won't be... Um, and nor are there in public inquiries, to be fair. But, I mean, the point of this is really systemic reform, uh, providing a forum for people to continue to uncover the wrongdoing and looking forward to finding a way to solve these big problems. So those big problems, yeah. I mean, th there has been heartbreaking testimony and, and, and stories uh, about what has happened that has led us to this point. What do you hope emerges from the other side of this process? Well, I think there's, there's a practical piece which is we need to improve our systems. So we need to figure out where, you know, why this is happening from a systems design point of view. Where are there, um, where are there gaps in accountability, um, you know, conflicts within boards of directors, um, you know, lacking of policies within an organization, lack of professionalism. You know, there's a challenge with so much of this is volunteer driven and there's training and then there's such massive churn and turnover. Um, but the actual end goal for me is culture change. Like, I want to get to a point where in sport in Canada, we do not tolerate this kind of behavior. No, you know, neither the um, really egregious full-on abuse or the normalized mistreatment that happens every day in, in, in a w where it wouldn't happen in any other form. Like, you'd never have an education system where parents would yell at the kids of other families um, that, they're, that they're performing poorly at what they're doing, that, yeah. that, that you'd never yell at the teacher as, you, as we see people yelling at referees or officials. Um, there's a lot of normalized poor behavior in sport. Well, uh, it, it, there's so many parts to that, yeah, though, right? right. I, I mean, look, like, you know, the Hockey Canada problem is well yep. documented. So there's fixing a corporate structure of yep. a large corporate entity that runs a bunch of minor programs. But then there is parents, and then there is coaches, and then there is fans. volunteers, and then there's officials, and then there's fans. Like, can even a, a process, you know, yeah. as well-intentioned as this one, deal with all of that? Well, it was like my dream was the sport we want commission, but that felt a little lofty. Um, and I think pragmatically we are going to get a system that's more re resilient, that's more responsive. Um, and hopefully the conversations that this will lead to will, you know, evoke the culture change that I really want to see in the, it's super complicated. You add layers of jurisdictions, a volunteer piece, the, the power imbalances, the conflict of interest. It is, it is fraught. 
um, and it's not serving everyone well. How would you describe the culture now? Because this is all going to start yeah. from the premise of, like, let's, let's, let's just accept yeah. that yeah. there is a systemic problem that has led to horrible abuse and, and bad processes and mm -hmm. bad outcomes ha have been at the heart of it. I mean, how do you describe, like, the culture in sport? Are, are there examples of sport in Canada that are good, that well, it could uh, be hey, a model? I think, I think that good things happen in sport every day around this sure. country. And I hear daily how lives have been changed and how people have have found something inside themselves that it's building communities it's building res building resiliencies that it's the number two way that new immigrants connect to their communities that it it's a common language like there's some wonderful things about sport that we all know of course but there are a lot of people who don't feel included in that space in that system right because safe sport is is sport that you know is free from discrimination free from harassment free from abuse that's what we want i mean if i'm going to be right down to the grass you know nuts and bolts of it that's what that's what we want out of this process a sport that zero tolerance you know there, there's rebuilding i, I guess culture yeah. uh, but but i guess another big challenge minister is rebuilding trust in the yeah. sports system, as, especially for the people who were hurt by it. I agree. And, and you're not disagreeing with that. Obviously, you nope. stipulated that right yeah. up front. I mean, how do you think this process will, will help rebuild that trust and, that, that people will be held accountable and this doesn't happen again on the scale? Yeah, I think that's a multi-pronged approach. Mm -hmm. So first of all, athletes, athlete victims, athlete organizations, Athletes Can, the Olympic Athletes Commission, the Paralympic Athletes Commission, uh, survivors, Sheldon Kennedy, Alison Forsyth, Jim for Change. Um, I've spoken at length with all of these people and organizations in the development of this process. Um, while they might all not think it's the best way to go, I hope at least they see what they said they wanted to achieve in it, like whether it's in the outcomes or the mandate or the principles. Um, that's the first part is showing that we're listening. Um, and then throughout the process, making, you know, being super diligent in how we, because the process will matter, not just the outcomes. If people don't feel included, don't feel listened to, the, the best result will not will not build the trust you're talking about so we gotta we gotta earn that trust back like we not just me and the government right in fact i would say more the system than anything else the the this this chronic normalized bad behavior like Look, bad things have happened i, I got two yeah. little boys and there's yeah. certain sports i wouldn't put them in yep. because of culture issues and, and you know or wouldn't push them to yes. join right yes. uh, because of this so uh, uh it's important work that needs to be done uh, minister of sport carla Caltro, thanks so much for coming in thanks Appreciate for the conversation it. very important thank you The federal government announced today the details of the new dental care plan. It's a $13 billion program expected to help up to 9 million Canadians whose net income is below $90,000 and don't have dental insurance. The Canadian dental care plan will cover a wide range of services for Canadians. It will cover preventative, diagnostic, restorative, surgical, among other services to ensure their smile is healthy and joyful. These include x-rays, fillings, root canal treatments, and dentures. Now, the dental care plan was, of course, a main condition in the NDP supplying confidence deal with the Liberals, and NDP health critic Don Davies joins me now. Mr. Mr. Davies, uh, thanks for coming in. Great to be with you, David. Uh, you took a lot of heat saying that you're going to prop up this government for a dental program they would never deliver, but here it is. How does it feel that, uh, that this gotten to this point? Well, it feels fantastic. Uh, you know, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say this is a, a historic day. Um, you know, I think you're right. A lot of people didn't think this could happen. Civil servants told us that our, our timeline was too ambitious. There were constitutional issues. They said provinces wouldn't agree. So we, but we persevered and we worked really hard on the NDP side. We knew this was a, a flagship uh, 
component of the confidence and supply agreement and uh, we knew we had to deliver a good program for Canadians so I think we did that here today and I, I feel really satisfied. It, it still needs to be phased in. It's going to, eligibility is going to roll out on a staggered approach so to make sure it goes smoothly. But there is still some opposition provincially. We've heard complaints from Quebec about this intruding into jurisdiction. How much do you worry about that and the possibility that maybe some provincial dental programs may recede and dump the costs onto the federal government? Well, that's a concern, but uh, I'm, I'm not terribly concerned at this point. Um, first of all, this is a national program that's 100% paid by the federal government. So I don't see that being an incursion into provincial jurisdiction. Second, with Quebec, as is always the case, if Quebec wants to opt out and uh, construct their own program that's equivalent with compensation, that certainly can be negotiated. But, you know, if I were a premier or a territorial leader and I had the federal government that was prepared to pay 100% of the costs of residents in my province or territory, in order to get them to have their oral health care needs taken care of. I would leap at that. And you know, the other thing is that keeps people out of the emergency rooms. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's a cost savings to the provinces. So I think it's a win-win for the feds and the provinces and territories. So if the provinces do pull back what existing dental pro because there's kind of a patchwork across mm -hmm. the country. It exists mm -hmm. in some provinces, not in others. You'd be okay with that if a province said, well, the feds are now filling the space. We're going to pull back and put 100% on Ottawa? Mm -hmm. Well, it's not our intention. Our intention is for people who already have coverage to continue that coverage, and we want to make sure that everybody who doesn't is brought up to that level. Right. That's our intention. Um, and I understand the federal government is in talks with all of the provinces and territories, and um, my information is that that's going well. I don't think any province or territories um, are looking to to uh, diminish the, the coverage that they already have. And by the way, there's no province in the country that has an excellent program. No. There are people in every province, seniors, kids, low-income people, uh, who don't have access to this, uh, this vital primary health care service. You know, I mean, we're talking about 33% of Canadians. That's, you know, what, 13 million Canadians don't have dental care. So this is a major step forward. Yes, if the, if the numbers of 9 million qualifying for this, I mean, that speaks to the need and clearly the gaps that exist yes. in the system. But this is a fill-the-gap system. It's not a universal benefit. Mm -hmm. You're also in negotiations with them on Pharmacare. Why is fill-the-gaps good enough for teeth but not good enough for drugs? Well, the NDP uh, has as a bedrock principle uh, that we believe that um, all healthcare coverage head-to-toe should be delivered through our public healthcare system universally mm -hmm. and comprehensively. Um, so I guess the, the reason that we moved this way in dental care was on pharmacare, there's been decades of work costing um, academic research of the way that we can fold pharmaceuticals into our public health care system. So that's why that's been our red line on pharmacare. On dental care, we don't have that kind of work yet. So uh, we campaigned in the last election on um, covering people who don't have coverage now as a first step, as a down payment, if right. you will, towards universal dental care. So um, we acknowledge that this is a major step forward, but there's more work to do, and we won't stop until everybody has dental care provided through a public health care system as it should be. But this, could this be a template uh, for where PharmaCare goes? I, I know you have the red line uh, that, that, that you've laid out and certainly was discussed at your convention mm -hmm. in Hamilton earlier this year, uh, but there are certain practicalities around cost, provincial resistance, people preferring, say, their private plan when it comes to that, and uh, you know th these may become obstacles that are tough for the Liberals to get over. No, I, I don't see that changing with Pharmacare. With Pharmacare, there's too many studies, David, from the PBO to the Hoskins Advisory 
committee to the health committee that I sat on, uh, seven that I'm familiar with in a row, that found that it's only by folding pharmaceuticals into the public health care system mm -hmm. that you get the 40% savings through bulk buying, that you get the cost-related non-adherence, the savings you get from people not getting sicker, the streamlined administration. So the economics are just so strong for pharmacare going through our public system that uh, and, and there's frankly no evidence really to go the other way, that it would be economically and I think policy-wise foolish to do anything but to fold pharmacare through our public system. So we're going to hold firm on that. Just one last question uh, on dental care, just to sure. go back there. Um, there's been some criticism and suggestions uh, that, you know, maybe private companies might pull back their benefits because of this, that this might be something that, well, if the state is going to do it, why should we bear that cost right. as an employer? And I know there's income thresholds, but maybe, you know, lower and middle incomes mm -hmm. that, that, that get it through their employer. This could be a possibility. How confident are you that it stays? Can you put measures in place to, to stop that from happening? Well, it's a realistic consideration, and it's been something that we've heard over the past couple of years. Um, we'll have to wait and see what happens. But you have to remember that private dental plans often are different. Um, they have cosmetic components right. to them. Um, and again, as you pointed out, uh, with the income threshold of $90,000, there are people that have coverage that wouldn't be covered by this plan. And employers, when they purchase extended health care plans that include dental, buy a basket of services. You know, there's massage, there's, there's prescriptions, there's, um, there's uh, physiotherapy and psychology. There's, other, there's a whole suite of things so that are covered. it's not as easy to unwind That's as just right. pulling out one thing. Yeah, so I, I, I honestly don't think you're going to see that happen. And if we do, then we'll have to take policy measures in the future to respond accordingly. Okay, Don Davies, NDP health critic. Thanks for coming in. Thanks, David. That's it for today. If you like this episode, please follow the pod and catch our next live show on CBC News Network. We're on weekdays at 5 p.m. Eastern Time. I'm David Cochran. Thanks for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.